Good morning, everybody. So today's scriptures, the two key scriptures really, will be in uh, Matthew 26, 36 through 44, which is what we read this morning. And then also to uh, give a bigger picture, Luke 22, 39 through 46. So if you want to keep your fingers in those two places, and I'll repeat them in a minute. It would probably be a good idea if I turn there as well. All right, and I apologize in advance for the, uh, my PowerPoint notes that are coming up. On my computer, I chose a really cool theme. And then uh, I pasted it into the computer up there and it kind of merged the themes. So there's a lot of pink and black up there today and I apologize. And also it changed some of the fonts. So some of those are really hard to read. All right, so our <laughs> Our core text, again, is going to be in Matthew 26, 36 through 44. And I'll briefly read through those again. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And we'll focus on that little section, just as a head note, uh, heads up. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father... If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the words again. Then over in Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. And he came out and went, as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And he, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The topic of our discussion today is trials and our relationship with Jesus. This is something that's been on my heart for a while, something I've been convicted of uh, for a time. And as I was putting the message together for this morning, uh, I really didn't have a core scripture uh, to start from, and then here recently uh, ran across this scripture, and it kind of summarized what we will be discussing, and we'll go through these two scriptures, or mostly the one from Matthew, as we proceed through the morning. We'll be kind of jumping around, and then we'll come back to those scriptures as we go along. All right, so it's kind of hard to see, again, apologize, <laughs> but the note the components of the event and of Jesus' prayer. Notice he calls for alertness. And why would he call for alertness? He tells them to be alert, to watch and pray, lest they enter into temptation. And watching and praying is, is key, as we'll read later on, is very important to not falling into temptation. It's not just a matter of praying, Lord, keep me safe today, or whatever. It's living in prayer. So be alert. And it's being alert, too, to not being alert. It's easy to kind of go along and live your life and do all of the things that you're supposed to do just almost in repetition. And it's easy to not be alert at that time. Notice the intense prayer that Christ went through. Also notice he asked the impossible. When 
Christ was in the garden, and he was praying this prayer. And when he talked with his disciples and said, you know, watch and pray, this was really an example for us. Jesus always showed us how to do things. In the desert, when he was being tempted by Satan, he showed us how to overcome temptation. Go to the word of God. Go to the word of God. Be grounded in the word of God. And here in the garden, when he's faced with not only temptations, but also a very serious trial, many trials on different fronts, what is his response? His response is to pray. But in his prayer, he still asks the impossible also. He talks about resisting temptation, and he himself resisted temptation. Note how he sweat great drops of blood. It was the agony of what he was going through, but it also correlates to Hebrews 12.4 that says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. It's you are to strive so hard, you are to press in so deep to God that, in a sense, you would sweat blood. Note also the surrendering that Christ had to God. And then the intimacy and the fellowship that Christ had with the Father. So this footnote, it was trials. What are they? And are they promised? Now there's unfortunately many Christians who are under the impression that um, once, you, once you accept Christ, once you belong to Christ, uh, life is just kind of an easy, smooth sailing road. You're supposed to um, get better and better. You're supposed to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Uh, everything just kind of starts falling into place and going your way. And we know that to be true, right? No, everybody's shaking their head, no. That is not true. In fact, we are promised just the opposite. The, and if you go through Scripture, trials, temptations, tribulations, uh, hardships are scattered constantly throughout Scripture. And a lot of the trials, the tests, the temptations, some of them can be uh, negative and others can be beneficial but they all have the final outcome of strengthening your faith. Just like a metal object, uh, let's say a piece of steel that goes through the forge, it goes through uh, the fire, it is shaped and strengthened, it's hardened. And so to our faith when we go through trials is the same way. But what are some maybe practical translations? Uh, strength faithening, or faith strengthening things. Uh, that we see. Everyday stuff can be trials. And what do I mean by everyday stuff? Sometimes just life itself can be a trial. Uh, little things. And you'll note as you walk with God that sometimes it's not one big trial that comes your way, but a succession of multiple trials. Everyday stuff, and this is also where I've been convicted. This week, as I was, you know, meditating on this and preparing uh, the study, our sink clogged up, and I had to, you know, flush the sink. And I think, okay, that's not a big deal. Get home late from work. I'll take care of it. Was taking care of it. Um, got it all cleaned out. Was tightening up all the pipes. And as I tightened up the last pipe, something snapped. And it was 9:30 at night, and Home Depot was closed. And I was tired, and I'd whack my knuckles. And it was just one of those moments. This is everyday stuff. This is what I'm talking about with everyday stuff. It's one of those that, you know, you just want to take the wrench and throw it down. And again, I was convicted of how I should respond in those type of trials. Then there's stress as a trial. You know, we all face stress in different ways and different types of stress. And again, a lot of these are little things that begin to wear on you. It's like droplets of water on a stone. It begins to shape that stone. It begins to make an indentation or something on the stone itself. Then there's health, marriage, and children. Now, that is a good thing. Those are good things. But I always joke that, you know, before I got married, 
I was the best husband and father that ever was. I had it all figured out. I was even told one time that I had the patience of Job. You know, and I'd smile to myself and think, yeah, you know, I've got, got that kind of locked down. Good to go. And God is good. I was blessed with a beautiful wife. But then I began to learn other areas in my life that God wanted me to, that God wanted to change. And then he gave us children. And the patience I thought I had, I found I didn't have, really. At least not in that area. And so it's been a growing, it's been a learning process. Again, some of these trials are not necessarily bad things. They are there to strengthen our faith. And in my instance, where I thought I was strong, God showed me that, you know what, you no, that, that's wonderful that you have this little section of patience or whatever, but I'm going to take you deeper. I'm going to take you further. Stresses of finance, uh, job, lack of job, the wind. Here in Ridgecrest, we can identify with that. Anytime the wind starts blowing heavy, I have to admit, there's an irritation that begins to build up. You go outside and, you know, whatever you're holding invariably wants to blow down the block. Sleep or lack of sleep, that can begin to wear on you. Then heavier things such as death. Persecutions. Temptations. So these are, again, just various trials that may come our way in little bits, in varying degrees, and in different ways. Jesus says in John 16.33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Note how he says you will have tribulation. It's not you might, you may. Uh, If you run into this, it's you will have tribulation. That's a promise. Those promises are hard because they're not the promises we necessarily like to hear. But what's awesome about this part of Scripture is God kind of sandwiches three promises. Two awesome promises with a not-so-great promise in the middle. Let me read that again. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Two amazing promises. In Christ we have hope and peace amidst tribulation and trials. In Thessalonians, the church is told that You will go through trials. We warned you ahead of time. Don't be surprised when you go through trials. Be strengthened. You will suffer affliction. Alistair Begg had a comment. He said, No life is without various kinds of trials, so knowing how to approach them is crucial to Christian maturity. Right thinking about trials will help us have a proper response when they come. So how do we view trials? We need to sometimes, at least for me, this is another area I've been convicted in, need to change my perspective on trials. Because when trials come my way, I tend to be, I don't like it. It doesn't feel good, so I get annoyed, frustrated. It's like, ah, stop, I don't like this. Instead of allowing God to teach me something through the process, instead of pressing into him and being victorious in him, it's not always easy to do. So there are different ways that we can respond to trials. We can fall into despair. One of our classic examples is in Jonah. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. This is in Jonah 4.8. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. It is easy to fall into despair. It's easy to fall into depression, uh, to become so overwhelmed that you allow it to just continually wash over you. Another response could be a desire to curse God. We have uh, an example in Job. If you ever want to learn about trials, go to Job. Job is an awesome book that gives you a glimpse into not only the heavenly realm, 
but also into Job's life and how he responded and just all of the things he went through. And as for those who are familiar with Job, you know that a lot of the trials he went through, he lost his, his wealth, he lost all of his kids, uh, he lost his health, and then he had awesome friends who came alongside him to give him great encouragement and tell him all of the things he was doing wrong in his life. But then something that's kind of missed, I've noted in uh, some of the studies that I've been through, is uh, they miss his wife. His wife was also a trial. And there's really a couple of reasons for that. So in Job 2.9, this is, we're only introduced to Job's wife a couple of times. Unfortunately, she doesn't have great uh, exposure to us. You know, we, we kind of get the worst side of her. Job 2.9, then Job's wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And then that's all you hear from Job's wife, and, you know, you kind of move on going, wow, okay. But step back for a minute. Note the things she says to him. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Are you still holding on to God? Why are you holding on to God? Remember, Job's wife went through all of the same stuff that Job went through, with the exception of her being afflicted physically. But her husband was afflicted physically. So she went through, she lost her wealth as well. It wasn't just Job. She wasn't unaffected. It was, she lost everything as well. She lost her children. Her husband became horribly sick to the point of, you know, sitting down in ashes and scraping at himself with a potsherd. Not a pretty sight. Here is a wealthy, exalted man, and that is what he's, what he's reduced to. In her response, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Why are you still holding on to God? What has he done for us? He's let us down. He's disappointed us. And this is actually the very thing that Satan said Job would do when Job was afflicted. But look at it then from the perspective of Job. He's unable to properly comfort his wife during their time of trial. They've just lost their children. Under normal circumstances, he would be able to comfort her. But he's unable to do so. He's physically unable to do so. She's still having to kind of maintain. She's still having to be there for him, help take care of him. He also knows that he's now a burden to her. Imagine the stress that he would go through under that circumstance. Years past, I was a, uh, a home health nurse, and I would take care of uh, elderly individuals in their homes. And so it would either be the husband or the wife, uh, invariably, that was ill. And so I got to see some of the inner workings of the other spouse, actually of both, and how they would worry about each other, and how they would stress about each other. If the husband was ill, he was no longer able to take care of his wife, and she was having to take care of him, and just the stress that would go along with that. And so Job's wife's response may seem rather harsh, but if you kind of look at it from a different perspective, it gives you some insight into the pain she was going through, and the temptation for us to fall into that despair. God, why have you let us go through this? You've let us down. Her response, curse God and die, it's basically give up. Let go of God. What has he done? He's cursed us. And of course, Job's response, you know, his, his classic response of uh, God giveth and God taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He could do nothing more than just give her encouragement. Keep your focus on God. God is in control. I don't understand what's going on. I don't like it, but God is in control. We talked about doubting and how it's, it's easy to doubt God. Again, much like Job's wife, to pick on her a little bit. I'm glad that God puts was real 
and put all of these warts, injuries, and so forth in Scripture. We got to see some of the worst part of humanity in Scripture to learn from, to identify with. If we had just people who were uh, Marvel superheroes, there's no way for us to compare to them. These were not Marvel superheroes. This was not fake stuff. This was real life. Our responses sometimes are to complain. We go back to Numbers 11.1, 1, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. It's easy to complain about our life and things that go on, and God, why? Then sometimes our response is to handle everything in our own strength. That's okay, I've got this. I can do this, I'll just suck it up. Lace up my bootstraps and, and gut it out. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know that Israel did that many, many times and failed every time. They would go out to battle. God would say, okay, I want you to go out and conquer this nation. I'm with you. Go do it. So they would go out and they would win. They'd be like, all right, we got this. We can do this. And the next time they would go out and they would lose and they'd come back and go, okay, what happened? And God said, well, you didn't ask me. You, I didn't go with you at that time. I have to be a part of your life. I have to go with you. I have to say, go do this. And then they would go, okay, well, should we do it? Yes, now you can go do it. Now you will win. And then there's also the aspect of not addressing sin. And we use Israel again as, the, uh, as an example and they did this many times, but in 1 Samuel 4, 2 through 4, this was where Israel was in sin, Hophni and Phinehas, the two priests, were doing things they shouldn't do, and they were leading the nation into sin. And Israel went out to fight the Philistines. The Philistines drew up in a line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men in the field of battle. Note Israel's response. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Okay, logical question. The response is, Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come along with us and save us from the power of our enemies. Note how they didn't seek the Lord. They didn't turn to God. They said, okay, God, why, why did God do this to us? And then instead of going, okay, Lord, what's going on? What did we do? What should we do? Why did we suffer defeat? Instead of actually going to the Lord with it, they said, well, we'll come up with our own solution. Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. That will save us. And so the people went to Shiloh. They brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. They went to battle with the Philistines, and they lost many thousands of men. And the Ark of the Covenant was stolen, and the two priests were killed. And then, of course, subsequent bad things happened. It's easy a lot of times when we go through trials to to be looking down at what we're going through and trying to figure out how we can take care of it. And if we can't take care of it, a lot of times we fall into, that's where we fall into the despair, the doubting. And if you've noticed kind of a theme, really, our responses should always be to look up. So why trials? Why does God use trials? Uh, this is where, in our Christian life, the rubber meets the road, so to speak. This is where knowledge is put into practice. It's very easy as a Christian to study God's word. And we talked about, you know, doing kind of the same thing over and over again. You, you're praying, you're reading God's word, you're going to church, you're fellowshipping, you're doing all of the right things, you're knowing God's word more, uh, you become very strong in your theology but a lot of times, like one of the churches addressed in Revelation, we tend to leave our first love. We tend to forget about God a lot of times. We tend to forget about the relationship with God. Again, it's that aspect of we can handle this. That's kind of what it turns into. And so a lot of times God will use trials to get our attention, 
to make us look up, but also to put into practice what he's taught us. It's pretty amazing to learn things in God's word and then later to run into a trial that correlates with what I've just learned in his word. And you can then put into practice what you've learned. It's not always easy to do. It's not fun necessarily. But it is amazing to look back and see how God orchestrates things. In James 1, 2 through 4, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect or perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God uses trials again to strengthen our faith, to draw us closer to him. And this is just to kind of help shift our focus as to trials and, and what they are and how God uses them. A lot of times God will use our trials to show how weak we are, to see our weakness and our dependence, our absolute dependence on Christ. This is, uh, it's an ongoing thing. It's not something that, okay, I, I see it now and I'm good to go from this point on. This is a lot of times a day by day, sometimes a moment by moment thing. You have to see your absolute dependence upon Christ in every situation for everything. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Now we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this surpassingly great power is from God and not from us. Paul compares us to jars of clay. How, how easy is it to break a jar of clay? Very easy. Very easy. You bump it and it shatters. You bump it and it cracks. But God uses us, these jars of clay, and clay is also made from the earth, which is kind of a, an interesting correlation. That has to show his surpassingly great power is from him and not from us. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but he, God, said to Paul, this is the famous uh, passage in scripture where Paul was dealing with an affliction. He was drilling, dealing with a tribulation and he went to God and said, God, please take this away from me. And he prayed three times and God's response was, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul responds, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This is not a this is not a fatalist attitude that Paul has. This is not a, okay, fine, whatever. That's just what I have to deal with. It's just another day. It's not a case sarah, sarah type thing. Okay, you know, just whatever will be, will be. This is a true surrender of yourself, of your situation to God. Noting that, okay, I have a weakness or I have something that I'm struggling with. I will surrender to God. God will get me through it, whatever it is. Pastor made the comment, God often shakes the physical to get us to respond to the spiritual. So how should we respond to trials? And this is uh, really kind of getting to the point finally. So this is where we go back to our core scriptures. Now that we've learned how we respond in the flesh and how we can be afflicted, it, and this is by no means an exhaustive list of how we can be afflicted. We go back to how Jesus responded. What was the first thing that he did? What did he do when he went to the garden? I mean, he took his friends with him, but then he told them to watch and pray. And then he went off a stone's throw, which isn't too far away, and prayed. Intense prayer. Prayer is vital communication with God. And there are different aspects of prayer. In Psalm 55, 22, 
I'll briefly read through these. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be shaken. Same thing is said in 1 Peter. Cast your anxiety on Jesus. Psalm 27. If you're ever in despair, if you're ever struggling with something, I absolutely love the Psalms. David and the psalmists were very real when they wrote those and all of the struggles that they went through. And some of them perhaps were more than what we deal with in some ways, but they hit the key points of how trials afflict us and how we struggle with different stuff. It is normal to deal with depression, to deal with despair, to deal with these things, to deal with these natural responses to trials that come our way. It's a normal thing. That's part of our flesh. That's part of our sinful self. It's how we actually then have to turn and respond to those trials. That's why it says, cast your burden upon the Lord. Don't try to handle it yourself. Turn to God. Tell God about it. Psalm 27, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And that waiting is not just a sitting back going, okay, well, you know, God will fix it for me someday. It's a, it's a trust. It's a resting in Christ. It's knowing that, you know what, God has, he's got this. He's aware of what's going on. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. As you draw closer to God, you'll feel, feel more of his presence. You'll be able to see more clearly. In Isaiah 26, 3, it says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Now, prayer, as a side note, is not a, uh, when you pray, it's not rubbing the genie's lamp. It doesn't make everything all better and all go away. And suddenly all the trials are gone and everything is rosy again. When Jesus was praying in the garden, did the trial go away? No, it didn't go away. When Paul prayed three times, did the trial go away? No, it didn't go away. So a lot of times people will view prayer as, again, rubbing that, that magic lamp. God will magically make this go away if I pray. That's not how it works. But God will get you through the trial. God will begin to change your perspective. God will begin to change your attitude. God will begin to give you peace and joy. As he said in John, I'm going to give you peace. He didn't say he was going to take the trial away. He just said he was going to give us peace. That means we will get through the trial. We will have what we need to get through it. I don't have this in my notes, but Psalm 23 where it says, He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. My cup runs over. He prepares a table that we can eat from. What is it that we're eating? His word? Fruit of his spirit? More of him. So how should we respond to trials? Prayer, again, that's a vital part of our life in Christ. But again, there are different aspects of prayer because we oftentimes think of prayer of, you know, getting on your knees and saying, okay, you know, which is good. Certainly do that if you're able. But different parts of prayer are questioning. Oh, wait a minute. I thought you said that that's how we respond in our flesh. Well, to question God is to, and to do it properly is to go to him and say, Lord, be honest with him. Lord, this is how I'm feeling right now. I'm frustrated. I'm confused. What's going on, God? It's a difference between what the Israelites did where they said, okay, what happened? Oh, well, we can go fix it ourselves versus God, what happened? And when you turn to God and you question, God, what happened? What, what do I need to do? You've opened up a line of communication and God begins to change your heart and give you guidance to get you through whatever you're going through. Habakkuk, question God quite pointedly. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? 
pretty honest. Does God always hear? Absolutely. But it sometimes feels like he doesn't hear. It sometimes feels like he's not really there. God, are you there? I heard a saying that uh, the teacher is always quiet during the test. A lot of times, God is quiet to test us. And sometimes that gets our attention. And we press in deeper. Ask, seek, knock, God tells us. To be honest with God, the psalmist in Psalm 73 says, Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. In innocence I've washed my hands, for I'm afflicted all day and punished every morning. As he was looking at the world, going, They're thriving, they're prospering, they've got everything they want. And here I am, I'm doing all of the right stuff, and it's just like one tough day after another. God, why? And he begins to doubt and said, Surely I in vain, in vain, I've kept my heart pure. In innocence, I've washed my hands. And again, he's talking to God. This is not just him sitting there mumbling and grumbling to himself. He's talking to God at this moment. He said, If I had said this, I will, if I said, If I will speak this way, then I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all of this, it was troublesome in my sight until I entered God's sanctuary. And then I discerned the world's end. When you seek God, when you press into him, again, he begins to change your perspective. Complaining is another response to trials. Now, we've, we've seen complaining in the flesh, what that's like, where people complained about God, but they didn't complain to God. Again, there's a difference. The psalmist in Psalm 55 said, But I called to God, and the Lord will save me. Save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. It is okay to complain to God. Just make sure you do it to God. In honesty, Lord, I don't like this. I'm mad, Lord. That's okay. God knows your heart. He knows your mind. Be honest to him. Our responses should also be to remember that he is in control. Do we believe that God is sovereign? Do we believe that he's in control? Is God just in control of the universe? Or is he in control of our lives? Our lives as well. He is in control of the universe, all the way down to our lives. Is he just in control of the big things that happen to our lives? Or is he in control of every little moment of our lives? The hair on our heads, exactly. Every moment, every intimate detail. It's amazing for me, when I catch a glimpse of God, I can stand back and I can see his fingerprint and even just the little things in my life. And it's like, God, why would you even bother with something so simple? And his response is, I, because I love you. I'm involved in your life every moment. When it says in Scripture, commit your works to the Lord, and all your ways will be established. It's surrender your life to Christ, every moment of every day to Christ. And your ways will be established because you'll be walking in his ways, not that you will get what you want. You won't get that red Ferrari you've been praying about. But as you walk with God, he will change your perspective into where you are walking with him and doing the things that he wants you to do. You'll have his desires. So remember, he is in control. Psalm 147.4, he determines the numbers. God numbers the stars in, in space, in our universe and beyond. Not only does God know the number of every star out there, but he has names for all of them, it says in Psalms. Matthew 10, 29, touching on the hairs of your head. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet none of them would fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So do not be afraid. You are worth more than sparrows. Keep eternity in focus is another point. 
when you have a heavenly perspective, it's not always easy, but it's, it's easier to understand what might be going on, or at least you have the ability to turn to God and say, I know that you are in control and that whatever we're going through, you will get us through. Now, the key is remembering his faithfulness of old. Lamentations 3.21, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Then praise and prayer. And we touched on some of that scripture earlier. Philippians 4, 4 through 9 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in prayer, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Praise in prayer is very important. Um, We'll pause on that for just a moment. As you read through the Psalms, you'll note how the psalmist may go into a long complaint. But then usually at the end, there is a praise. It's always important when you start struggling with something to turn your eyes and give God a praise. I was... I had read a study years ago that said, even when you don't feel like it, find one thing to praise God for. When you're frustrated, angry, hurt, depressed, whatever the case may be, find one thing to praise God for. And sometimes that is very difficult to do. But there's usually always one thing that we can praise Him for. Can you think of it for a moment? What would be the one thing that comes to your mind? Salvation is one thing that comes to my mind, usually. I have hope in Christ. I get to be with him for eternity. And he's always with me. So no matter what, I can always praise him for that. You'll find that, and God's amazing. Psychologically, when you begin to do that, when you turn your eyes from yourself and the issues that you're going through and you lift them up and focus on God, again, your perspective changes. It changes how you think. It changes how you feel. I've also heard it said that if you look out and find people who need help, it changes your perspective. So focus on God. When you're going through those trials, turn your eyes to him and give him a praise. The other part of prayer, another part of prayer, I should say, uh, communication, is listening to God. And this part of prayer a lot of times gets neglected. It's easy for us to lay our troubles before the Lord a lot of times. It's easier, I should say to lay our troubles before the Lord, even to praise him. But then after that, we get up and go, okay, thank you, God. And we kind of go our way. And we forget to listen to what he might have to say to us. So when you're laying your complaint before him, when you're, when you're truly complaining to him, when you're truly laying a sorrow or a despair or anything before him, listen for his response. What is he going to say to you? And he responds to you in his word through scriptures, through other people that come into your life through truths that come to your mind. So listen to God. 1 Kings 19. This is uh, where Elijah was running from Ahab and Jezebel. Elijah made it to the cave where God had sent him. And as he was in the cave, it says, And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low, gentle whisper or a still, small voice. And when Elijah heard it, He wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Note how he didn't do that until he heard the still small voice. Then he knew God was talking. 
Elijah knew God. He walked with God. He knew God's voice. It's easy, though, to become distracted by all of the turmoil that's going on around us. And sometimes you have to listen closely for his voice. There's a part of prayer also, pre-prayer. And this is what Christ always lived in prayer. But then there were times where he would go off by himself and actually pray. In the garden, Jesus is gearing up for the battle that's coming. He knows what's going to happen. And so he's gearing up for what's going to happen. And he encourages his disciples to also gear up, to be prepared for what's going to happen. There's an example in Nehemiah that's kind of interesting. Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah heard some bad news about Jerusalem, how the walls were burned down, how the city was no more. And he said, as, I, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, brief history, just real quick. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, uh, I think it was the king of Persia at that time. And so he regularly stood before the king. The king would see his face. And as a servant to the king, what standing do you have? You're a servant. You're expendable, right? Go down to chapter 2 of Nehemiah. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? So if you've ever had your boss call you into the office and go, hey, what's, what's going on? There's, it's not a great feeling. You don't get a warm and fuzzy feeling inside. Usually it's kind of a pit that's like, oh, great, here we go. So the king sees Nehemiah and is like, what's up with you? Now this is all God because, for one thing, the king would notice his servant has a downcast face is, is kind of interesting and then would confront him about it. The king continues, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Nehemiah says, that I was very much afraid. And I said, the king, said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's grave, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and that's the key point that I wanted to hit. So note in chapter 1, Nehemiah prayed and fasted, long, intense prayers. Chapter 2, the king confronts him, and Nehemiah says, So I prayed to the God of heaven, and then said, This was one of those, okay, God, help me. Here I go. Give me words. It is beneficial to be pre-prayed, to be, to be geared for the battle that's going to happen. When uh, individuals are enlisted into the service, they go through something called boot camp, right? It gives them basic training, and then they go on to advanced training. Why do they receive that training? Why don't they just get their enlistment papers, get their uniform, get handed a weapon, and say, okay, out there, go take care of whatever the issue is? because they're not trained. They wouldn't know how to do it properly. So they have to go through a regiment of serious training. They prepare before the battle, is the short of the long point I was making. Be prepared. Pre-pray. Be in God always. Be prepared for what's going to happen. In Ephesians it's the full armor of God. Put on the full armor of God. And in Mark 13, 33, Jesus says, Be on your guard and stay alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. Spurgeon had a quote. He said, We must be awake now, for we traverse the enchanted ground and are most likely to fall asleep to our own undoing, unless our faith in Jesus be our reality and our love to Jesus a vehement flame, 
Many in, the, many in these days of easy profession are likely to prove terrors and not wheat, hypocrites with fair masks on their faces, but not the true-born children of God. Christian, do not think that these are times in which you can dispense with watchfulness or with holy ardor. You need these things more than ever, and may God, the eternal Spirit, display this omnipotence in you, that you may be able to say, in all these softer things as well as in the rougher, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Only ten more slides to go. All right, so we come back to where Jesus is praying. I talked about the intimacy when he prayed. In verse 39, he fell on his face and said in Matthew, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Note the title, my father. It's Abba, father. It's daddy. It's a intimate term. This is not a, you know, a sanctimonious our father. This is... Daddy, I'm going through something right now. It's a, an open, raw prayer. Then we talked, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. Don't be afraid to ask the impossible, as I said. When you pray for somebody who's sick, don't be afraid to pray intently. God, please bring healing to this person, somebody who needs salvation. Father, please save this individual. Don't be afraid to ask the impossible, but always be willing to surrender the outcome to Christ, whatever that outcome may be. And sometimes the outcome is not what we want not what we ask. God always answers prayer. But it's not always what we want to hear. So you have to be willing to say, as Jesus said, find my place again. Not my will, but yours be done. And again, that is not a, that's not a fatalistic attitude of just whatever will be, will be, or, you know, yeah, bad things happen, so my life isn't great and fantastic anyway, so it's probably just going to crash and burn. That's not the response that Jesus has, or that true followers of Christ are supposed to have. It's supposed to be, Father, it's a surrendering. You really have to lay this before Christ and say, okay, I may not like the outcome, but Lord, I'm going to give you the outcome. In Genesis, chapter 22, verses 1 through 2. After these things, God tested Abraham. So Abraham has prayed for years. How old was Abraham when Isaac was born? He was an old, old man. He prayed for years for a son, and God, finally, and God had promised him a son. He still had to wait years for that son. He was finally given a son, and the son began to grow. And... Abraham's heart was knit to his son's heart. Imagine the joy that Abraham had of just, when you've prayed so long for something and you finally receive it, it's just, oh, thank you, Lord. I, I, I finally have this. And to have a child is, it's awesome. To have your heart be knit to theirs is amazing. And after these things, God tested Abraham and said, Abraham. He said, here I am. And God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains in which I shall tell you. And then the scripture jumps to, and Abraham did what God asked him to do. We don't get to see the turmoil that Abraham went through that night. I seriously doubt he slept that night. This is not a light thing that God is asking. God's not saying, you know, that uh, 
that new red Chevy that you got, maybe trade it in and get a dark blue one. Okay, that's a good idea. That's not the type of response it was. It was take something that you have prayed intensely for and give it to me. I heard a pastor talk about how God used this to have all of Abraham's heart. And we know the scripture that Jesus talks about, the, the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what do I need to do to attain salvation? And Jesus said, well, you know, do these, do these things. And the rich young ruler said, I'm good. I, I've done all of those things for my youth up. And Jesus said, well, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and come and follow me. Give to the poor and come and follow me. And the man couldn't. He was crestfallen and he went away mourning because he had great wealth and he wasn't willing to give it up. Now, we're not necessarily called to give up all of our wealth, obviously. We're not necessarily called to give up our children like Abraham. But really, the call is still the same. This, these are dramatic examples of God's going, okay, this is what I will require of you in your heart. I want all of your heart. I don't want a part of it. I don't want three quarters. I want all of your heart. And for Abraham, it was, you have given me everything, Abraham, except for your son. Now surrender your son to me. And we have to do that. We have to surrender, for those of us who are parents, surrender our children, surrender our spouses, all of us. We have to surrender our futures, our presents, and our pasts to Christ. To where we go, God, I love you more than this. You are more important than this to me. If I lost everything, Lord, I would still have you, and that is the most important. So, in Christ's prayer, when he says, not my will, but your will be done, it is an absolute surrender of your future and everything that you know is going to happen and that you don't know is going to happen. That everything that has happened in the past, everything that's happening in the, in the present, In Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You have to bear a burden anyway in life. It's not like when you come to, come to Christ, you're suddenly given a burden. Rather, you have a burden that you can't carry. Come to Christ. Give him your burden. You still have to carry a yoke. It's part of life. We still have to walk through this life. We still have to face trials and struggles and things. Frustrations, annoyances, irritations, whatever the case may be. But we can do so now in Christ. We have him. We have his strength. Brings us to our last points. We overcome by Christ, not through our strength. And this is something that, again, it's every day. You have to be reminded a lot of times. Joshua 1.9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Zechariah says, not by my power, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. We have the ability to be overcomers, conquerors in Christ, not just survivors. When you get through a trial, don't just survive it. Be a conqueror in Christ. Turn your eyes to him. Go to prayer. Again, when you go to prayer, it doesn't, it doesn't make everything rosy and wonderful, 
but you're given a strength to get through it. You still have to walk through it. When uh, God would tell the Israelites, go conquer the land, I'll be with you. They didn't just sit back and go, okay, God says he's going to give us the land and conquer it and everything, and we don't have to do anything. They still had to go forward and walk in faith. He gave them the strength to conquer the land. But they had to be obedient. They had to walk with him. This is where the watching and praying comes in. We are overcomers in Christ. We don't have the strength as the disciples did. Don't be too hard on the disciples. This is our flesh in full display. We do not have the strength, the ability to watch one hour with God. We'll fall asleep for whatever reason, despair, distraction, fatigue. We physically can only do so much. We can only handle so much mentally. These guys were pretty stressed. You need Jesus' strength. Martin Luther had a comment, a quote. He said, To be a Christian without prayer is more, no more possible than to be alive without breathing. But in order to have that prayer, in order to grow, you need a relationship with Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You can go to church and read your Bible and attend prayer meetings and do all the wonderful things. You can even reach people for Christ. I've seen people do this, but they don't know him. And when a trial comes their way, God says you'll know them by their fruits, because invariably a trial will come their way and exposes them for who they are. Know Jesus. Have that relationship with him. Walk with him daily. Prayer is not just offering up a petition and then walking away. It's communication with God. Tozer said, it is simply not enough to know about God. We must know God in increasing levels of intimacy that lifts us up above all reason and into the world of adoration and praise and worship. But you can't have a relationship without knowing Jesus and accepting him first. Have you surrendered to him? Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you, anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Open your heart. Again, that's that surrendering. Open your heart to Christ. All of the areas, all of the dark spots, all of the corners, every area of your life. We all have attics, basements, storage areas in our lives that it's like, well, you know, We'll get to that later. It's kind of like the hallway closet. We'll get to that later. The garage, I'll get to that later. There's more important things to deal with. What's funny about this, not funny, haha, but more like God is, God is faithful. When you get prompted about your hallway closet and you go, yeah, we'll, we'll deal with that in a bit, God will not let you just push it off. He will continually, what about the hallway closet? You haven't opened up that door to me yet. Hebrews 3, 7 through 11. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So again, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you don't know Jesus, there is no greater joy 
than to know the living God who can give you peace, purpose, hope. It's something indescribable at times to where, and it talks about this in Scripture, when you go through trials. I have seen so many Christians go through horrendous trials and still sing his praises. I've read accounts of the martyrs, many of them ordinary people, common farmers, and they get attacked and put through horrendous things and are said to still be singing his praises up until the very last moment they breathe. Knowing Jesus is, is more than just going to church. It's more than just doing the right things. It's surrendering your heart to Christ. If you haven't done that, I definitely invite you and encourage you to do so. Last quote by Tozer. The reason why many are still troubled, still seeking, still making little forward progress is because they haven't yet come to the end of themselves, where you're still trying to give orders and interfere with God's work within us. Again, my call to you today is be willing to say those very hard words, not my will, Father, but yours be done.